Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. My guest this week is kind of a renaissance man. His name is Dennis Palumbo. He is a writer and also a therapist. He started out as a sitcom writer on shows like Welcome Back, Cotter. But unlike the rest of us, he went legit and he became a licensed therapist. And he later went on to write such movies as My Favorite Year, one of my all-time favorites, also a series of mystery novels. He writes articles for the Writers Guild magazine for Psychology Today. He has done features on NPR. And it's really fascinating because here is a therapist who really knows how to deal with creative people and creative issues. And so we talk a little bit about his career and we also get into some of the issues that writers in particular have to deal with, notably writer's block and fear of failure and having to write on demand and that sort of thing. It's a fascinating interview. You are going to enjoy meeting Dennis Palumbo. Okay, first I want to start at the beginning of your career. You were a a sitcom writer. Oh, no. A sitcom writer. And you and Mark Evanier were partners on Welcome Back, Cotter, a That's show, right. by the way, they would not even let us come in and pitch. Oh, oh no. Well, if I had been in charge, certainly you would have been allowed to. It was actually not our first credit. Our first credit was the first uh, series episode of Love Boat. And okay. when, I, when I tell people that, they always laugh, and I go, yeah, but I just got a 13-cent residual check from the Balkans. <laughs> you know, so who's laughing now? But, yeah, our first staff job uh, uh, was on Welcome Back, Cotter, and it was really fascinating. A lot of fun. But you decided to sort of move away from that and get into screenwriting, and you wrote, along with Norman Steinberg, one of my favorite comic screenplays 
movie called My Favorite Year. And if you have not seen My Favorite Year after this podcast, go seek it out and take a look. What a funny movie. Talk a little bit about that, because that is kind of a cult classic. Well, that's the thing. It became a cult classic. I mean, again, I share screenplay credit with Norman Steinberg. The story is mine. Um, the thing that, that was so interesting is when the movie came out uh, in, in uh, 83, I think, that movie and Victor Victoria were the two comedies that MGM put out that people think of as hits. But they were only hits in New York, Chicago, and L.A. <laughs> really? But what happened is when the Z Channel and all these TV channels that began showing movies, right. my favorite year has mostly been seen on television. Almost no one saw it in the theater. And so it's become a cult classic over time. It's kind of a, a throwback to... The Sid Caesar Show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, talk a little bit about what the premise is. Well, and the premise. How did you come up with it? Well, it was very interesting. I came up with it because my dad uh, is the world's number one Errol Flynn fan. When I was a kid, uh, in the Late Late Show, show how old I am, they used to show these movies like Captain Blood right. and Adventures mm-hmm. of Robin Hood. And he would get me out of bed on a school night like at 2 in the morning and sneak me wow. down to the television so that we didn't wake up my mom. Wow. And the volume was so <laughs> low, we had to put our noses up to the screen to hear it. <laughs> but I always thought, what would it be like to have Errol Flynn come to our house? Because it would be the best gift I could give my dad. Uh-huh. So anyway, that's kind of uh, how it started. And uh, I Stock went up on the liquor. Yeah, I was all over the place with this story. When I first pitched it, it was actually I had been thinking about you know westerns like um, Butch Sundance and and those things, and I thought, well, I knew that there was a story about Doc Holliday being brought to New York. And a kid having been sent by the railroad to take him to New York. So then I thought, well, what if someone had to take Errol Flynn to a show like your show of shows and keep him sober and straight enough that he could perform on the show? On a live show. On yeah. a live show. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where that came from. That's where the idea came from. Yeah. And the thing that makes me, I think, the happiest and the reason I think the film is as good as it is is because of Peter O'Toole. Oh, he's fantastic in and that movie. And I wrote it for Peter O'Toole, which made me so happy because nobody wanted Peter O'Toole. Really? No, the first choice was Michael Caine when it was at MGM. Okay. And then the second choice was a wonderful actor who just died, Albert Finney. Mm-hmm. And Finney said, no, you want O'Toole. <laughs> and anyway, they couldn't make the movie. Nothing happened. And so it went into turnaround for four years. This is when it was at This Fox. is typical Hollywood, yeah. by the way. Yeah. You write a great screenplay. Oh, nobody and cares about sits that. It sits for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. While but, they make Pootie Tang. Yeah. Yeah. But we got very lucky. Peter O'Toole got nominated as best actor for The Stuntman. Mm-hmm. And for like three months, he was bankable. <laughs> and for those three months, they were able to attach him. And by then, it had gone into turnaround, and it was now at a different studio. It was at it's MGM. It's hard to believe that Peter O'Toole, who was Lawrence of Arabia, was not a bankable star as far as Hollywood was no, concerned. No, I mean, yeah. he hadn't had a hit for quite a long time. Yeah. And uh, so it was when he he was nominated for The Stuntman that he became bankable. Huh. And so, I mean, if you think about it, that's one of the things that an Oscar 
nomination gets you is you get enough visibility that people start putting you in things for a couple of years. <laughs> That's right. You can work for three months. Yeah. Adrian yeah. Brody, you know, uh-huh. for The Pianist, and uh, Jeffrey Rush for that. I forget the name of the movie he got nominated for. Right. That allows you then to play bad guys or cranky old senators for the next two or three years. Brie Larson. Yes. Captain yes. Marvel. Yes, yeah. Captain Marvel. There you go. Gosh, I hope that movie makes a few dollars, don't you? <laughs> Best use of an Oscar. Yes, yeah. yes. Be Captain Marvel. So anyway, that's the story. Did uh, they change your script a lot? Did, uh, did they no, I'd have say it's rewriters about, well, they, well, you know, Norman came along and rewrote it, but it was also ad-libbed a lot on set. And right. I, I would, if I had to say, I'd say it's about 50% mine, 50% okay. Norman's. That's pretty good. I have good. no complaints. Yeah, no, that's Compared to other scripts. Yeah, that, when you don't even recognize it. Well, that's the thing. You not only don't recognize it, but I've rewritten scripts for people. And, you know, I'm a former Catholic, so I'm so shame prone. Uh-huh. I would call the original writer and apologize that I was going <laughs> to rewrite his script. And I'd always try to save as much as the person's script as possible. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, well. No wonder you got out of that pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you made a big life change. You became a therapist. Now, that is quite a left turn. Talk a little bit about making that transition and why you wanted to make that transition. Well, I had no idea I was going to make that transition. I was in personal therapy myself and became fascinated with the process. And so I started volunteering at psych hospitals and low-fee clinics. And I just thought, well, you know, I'm so interested in the topic. Why don't I take a class? You know, I mean, the worst that could happen is I take a couple master-level classes in psychology. As a writer, it could only help. Sure. It could only yeah. help, you know. You can write Frasier yeah, psychobabble. I, yeah, yeah, I could write all the psychobabble I needed. So, <laughs> And then, you know, after a couple years of that, I, I went to Nepal. I was working still as a screenwriter. And I was doing a film that, you know, like most films didn't get made that Robert Redford's company was doing about a famous mountain climber named Willie Unsold. And part of the deal, this was the old days where screenwriters were treated so much better. <laughs> I don't even remember them, yes. but okay. I yes. mean, we're talking a time now where Columbia right. Pictures gave me a credit card and said, go around the world for nine months and research mountain climbing. Uh-huh. And so can you believe they did that? They didn't right. do it Today anymore. they give you a link to YouTube. Yeah. yeah. They say, well, build a brand and come back to mm-hmm. us. So I, I went around the world. I ended up living in Nepal for three months, and I had kind of a razor's edge experience. I realized I was so much happier in those classes and working at the low-fee clinic than I was pitching movies. And I thought, I really think I might want to change my life. But I still wasn't sure. So I didn't tell anyone. I was like Bruce Wayne and Batman. By day, I was a screenwriter. (laughs) But by night on weekends, I was going toward my graduate degree in clinical psychology. Uh And then finally, 
uh, I had kind of a road to Damascus experience. I was sitting with a producer who wanted me to write this film. We were at a, a, a restaurant. I don't even know if it's there anymore called La Dome. Nope, on, on not sunset. anymore. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I just remember the place was always packed with agents. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, and he was pitching me a movie, and I kept looking at my watch because I had to get down to this private psychiatric hospital where I was co-leading a group of schizophrenics doing psychodrama, which is a whole other story. Right. And I couldn't wait to get down there. So I'm driving down La Cienica, and I'm thinking, I think I want to change my life. My first thought was panic. I thought I was having some sort of breakdown. Because I had worked so hard and had come so far. You know, show business was was very, very good to me. Uh, I have no complaints about show business. But I knew I was going to change my life. And so I ultimately sat for the exam and the orals. It took six and a half years. Where would you study? I was at Pepperdine first and then two low-fee clinics and a private psychiatric hospital in La Sienica. And then I also did five years uh, in a support and consultation group run by Bob Stollero, one of the nation's leading experts on trauma and intersubjectivity. And it takes 3,000 hours as an intern Mm -hmm. before you can even sit for the exam. So it took me about six and a half years. And, and you're writing movies? I'm writing movies and rewriting. And wrote, I wrote K, uh, K-9 and, and uh, Whitewater Summer and a couple other movies and two pilots for ABC. And after I passed and got my license, I called my agent, called my manager, called my lawyer, and called my business manager, and I fired all of them. <laughs> nicely, very nicely. Uh-huh. And I, you know, my agent said, are you going to another agency? I said, no, to be honest, I'm not going to be a screenwriter anymore. I'm a therapist now. Okay, let me put you on the spot for just a second. You said you did a pilot. Okay, what happens if the pilot would have gone? Well, and it luckily, would have gone to series. Would you have, well, no. Here's what, this, uh, it, you uh, you don't put me on the spot. I already thought of that. Okay. It was an hour-long pilot that was a comedy drama about stand-up comics because I had done stand-up at the comedy store. I okay. knew all the stand-up comics. And it was for ABC. And my thought was, you know, once you get the hours and pass the uh, the written – you have five years before you're required to sit for the test. So I could have run the show for five years and then sat for the test because uh-huh. I had not had a show of mine yet. So I thought if ABC makes this, I'll stay on as showrunner for at least three to four years. Right. So when they passed, so when they probably passed, relieved, right? I was kind of relieved, <laughs> though. I thought the script, it's so funny. I, I think the script was a little ahead of its time because now there's shows like I'm Dying Up Here right. and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget Ted Harbert at ABC said, well, it's a really good script, but nobody cares about these stand-up comics. <laughs> Then why did you buy it in the first place? Well, because his wife was a producer. Oh, oh. okay. <laughs> it's not that hard to work yeah. out sometimes in showbiz. Okay, so now you're a therapist and you really kind of specialize in dealing with writers, don't you? Yeah, my practice really specializes in creative issues. And I would say 80% of my patients are writers, TV writers, screenwriters, novelists. I also have actors, directors, producers, composers, uh, set designers. You know, I have. So you're dealing with the most 
fucked up people ah. in the world. Ah. With oh, creative I like, people. I, no, 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 no. <laughs> I like to think of them as the most wonderful and fascinating <laughs> people in the world. <laughs> I am so lucky. I have a patient base that is full of intelligent, articulate, and funny as hell patients. Right. And so I think what I bring to them is that I know what they're talking right. about. Right, you understand what they're going yeah. through. If somebody's yeah. anxious because they have to pitch, I've pitched a thousand times. If someone's concerned about procrastination, I was the king of pro- procrastination. So I think they benefit from the fact that I'm uniquely qualified to deal with these issues. What I benefit from is the sense of commonality, the universality. When I was a screenwriter, I was convinced every other writer was smarter, didn't worry about any of the things I worried about, (laughs) and just smoothly, you know, glided (laughs) through life. And I have had over the last 30 years I've been in practice some of my writing idols as patients, people I had never met but whose work I had always admired. Sure. And to find out that they struggled with anxiety and writer's block and procrastination and fear of failure, all the things that I had struggled with for years actually was very – provided some solace Made you feel for me. good probably. Yeah, I, yeah. I felt like we were, all, <laughs> we were all in the same boat. Right. And one of the things I think that being in therapy – in a practice like mine does do is it allows people to come and talk about stuff that they're afraid to talk about with their reps or with their, you know, producers or whatever, and know that they'll get a sympathetic hearing that's absolutely confidential. And so I get to hear and help them with building the tools to help them address those issues. I would imagine for writers, one of the big issues would be writer's block, correct? Yeah. So what are some of the things that writers can do to unblock themselves? Well, let me start by saying... Let me lie on the couch here, first of all. Okay. (laughs) Let me start by saying there's no one size fits all. You know, in my experience, everybody's issues as, as creative people are inexorably bound up in their personal issues. So... The first thing that I do when I work with someone who comes in and says, gee, I'm really blocked, well, what's the meaning of that to you? Because if for some people it means, oh, this story doesn't work. For other people it means, oh, I'm not a writer. I bet Robert Towns never blocked. Mm-hmm. People go all the way to, my parents were right, I should have gone to law school. You know, blocks have a powerful ability to reflect back on us what we think it means that I'm blocked. And so the first thing I try to do is help untangle that anxiety because the shame or the anxiety associated with the block makes it much harder to work through. The other thing that I've learned over time is that paradoxically, for most writers, being blocked is good news because it usually means you're about to make a plateau leap in your talent. Interesting. You know, it's like to me being blocked for a, if you if you look at the biographies of any artists you admire, painters, writers, filmmakers, there's always four or five periods where their work gets repetitive or nobody's buying it or interested and then bang, there's a spurt, you know, they go through their blue period or they go through this period. Mm-hmm. I think being blocked is is like one of the natural developmental steps that a writer goes through. 
you know, like a child has to toddle around until he slowly learns to walk. Right. He has to master that developmental step. And then the next step is maybe language or whatever. I think for a writer, a block is an opportunity for you to grow as a writer, whatever the issue is. Maybe you're writing something personal and you've never done that before. Or maybe you used to write comedy and this is your first attempt to write a thriller. There's any number of reasons. But the reason I think ultimately a block is good for a writer, I've never had a patient who once having worked through a writer's block didn't think they were a better writer on the other side of it. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So I see it as painful but good for a writer. Mm-hmm. People always ask me about that. And um, and they say, do you have any tricks or anything? And the only thing that I tell them, and I don't remember who told me this, but I said, sit down and write about what you're going through having writer's block. You know, that's excellent. Just sit down and and write about it. And sometimes just physically writing and expressing yourself kind of helps unlock some of those feelings. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm not screwing people over. No, that's very good advice. It's similar to uh, a suggestion, a homework suggestion I have for people who are blocked or who are procrastinating is I would say, like, you know, what are you feeling about this right now? And they'd say, oh, I feel stuck. I feel like I'm never going to get what I want. There's something wrong with me. And I go, is there any character in what you're writing who feels that way? And let's write a scene that has nothing to do with what you're working on. That character is at a bar talking to a bartender. Let him talk about his life. Let him talk mm-hmm. about what he's stuck on. Let him. And sooner or later, you're writing a scene. Now, this may be something that doesn't work in the narrative that you're working on. But invariably, there's one or two sentences, one or two lines of dialogue that click for the person doing this exercise. And they go, oh, I think I know how to do that scene now. But moreover, if you're writing, you're not procrastinating. I'm a big fan that writing begets writing. I think sitting around worrying begets more sitting around and worrying. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. I think, in fact, writers solve their problems by writing and not by thinking. Well, one of the things that I do, and of course every writer is different, but if I get blocked, if I am writing a script and I hit a wall, there's some story problem that I'm having, what I will generally do is just get up from the computer and go off and do something else and let my subconscious, if there is such a thing, sort of work on the problem. And oftentimes later, if I'm in the shower or when I wake up in the morning and I'm kind of in a relaxed state and I just sort of think of different options, um, the answer will pop into my head as if my subconscious has been working on the problem all the time. Now, I know that sounds kind of hippy-dippy, but (laughs) it it works for me. (laughs) Uh, As a therapist, I've come across hippy-dippy before, Uh uh, and I do think there's an unconscious, and I think many writers who are confident that sooner or later they'll work through something Mm -hmm. do get up from the table and take a shower or go running or something like that. 
and a hope that their unconscious is working on the problem. Right. You know, one of the things that's important to to remember is that you have a history of having solved problems before. Yeah, I remember when I did my column for the Writers Guild magazine, I had to deliver one every month. And around two or three days before the deadline, I'd have to send to the editor. I'd go, ah, I don't have an idea in my head. How do I do this? And I would get so anxious until I realized, wait a minute, I've written 42 of them so far. And before I wrote each one of them, I said to myself, I don't have an idea in my head. What am I going to do? So I realized my history included worrying that I didn't know what I was doing or that I didn't have an idea. Right. But I've thought that a hundred times before, and I always did something. So one of the things I think you get as you've been writing a long time, or if you're a veteran, your own struggles don't panic you as much. You know, people said to me, you know, because I've been in and out of therapy as a patient for many years, and people say, gee, are you, you know, less neurotic and insecure? And I say, no, I just don't hassle myself about it anymore. Well, I, I think that that's... Most of the veteran writers in my practice coexist with the same kinds of issues that they've had before, but they're so muted because they have the confidence of their history of solving problems. And I think when a patient is really in trouble is when they forget that history, when every moment defines who they are. So if they've written five great scripts and they're stuck on act one of script number six. Right, they're shit. They're shit. Yeah. It's over. I know. You know. <laughs> and that's one of the things that unfortunately when you're in a big competitive business like Hollywood that's all about perception and what did you do last Thursday, mm-hmm. you can really fall into that trap of thinking that every moment defines you. You know, one bad note from an executive means you've lost it. You're not any good anymore or you're out of date or whatever. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. Now, television writers also face a unique problem in that they really have to be creative on demand. Yes. You know, and I'm sure that learning how to do that, being able to deal with the constant pressure and the constant deadlines, I liken it to Pac-Man, where that little guy is just mm-hmm. chasing you. <laughs> well, given your experience in television, you certainly know that. Yeah. One of the things that is important for people to remember is you can be a very good writer, and yet a writer's room is not the suitable context mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some writers who love Neil being Simon. in the room, other writers who say, break the story and then let me go away for a week and right. I'll come back with a script. Mm-hmm. Neither one is wrong. It's just... You know, I remember this wonderful story about Kurt Vonnegut early in his career when he wanted to write for Bob and Ray. And he <laughs> walked in and watched them work for about 10 minutes. And he turned to their producer and said, I can't do this. I can't keep up that pace. I can't think that fast. I'm going to walk away. And he did wow. because he knew that wasn't the room for him. Mm-hmm. You know, And so a lot of fine writers uh, work very, very well outside of the room and others uh, I mean when I was in sitcoms half of the staff were stand-up comics so the idea of pitching jokes in a room and I mean I was not uh, as aggressive as I could have been in a room you know I there Mm -hmm. are certain people that I was so amazed how good they were you know and my first staff job on Cotter you know the one of the the showrunners was Eric Cohen really funny man and he had a giant uh, styrofoam pencil 
that I think he took from Land of the Giants, which you're too young to remember. But there was a TV show called Land of the Giants. And he took this big pencil and you'd pitch and he would come across the room and yell, not funny, and hit you on the head with it. And I thought, (laughs) wow, my experience of writing for television is all based on the Dick Van Dyke show. And I never remembered anyone hitting anybody. (laughs) I say, we get hit. But it, we, that was a great room. We had a lot of fun. And, you know. How do you help a writer find his voice? Well, mostly what you have to do is clear away all the brush. The voice is in there. The key is to find out what's preventing the voice from coming out. And in my experience, for a lot of people, if they're insecure, what prevents that from coming out is fear of shameful self-exposure. Like, wow, if people knew how darkly funny I was, if people knew how cynical I was, people knew what I actually thought about relationships. And I try to help them see that what they have to say will resonate for others. You know, uh, Emerson said that if you know that what is true for you in your private heart is true for everyone, that is genius. And if you think of the peak TV shows that everyone talks about now, and how edgy and funny and contradictory and subversive they are. People wouldn't watch them if they didn't relate to that. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I try to do is say to a patient, again, depending on their childhood dynamics, um, if you come from a family where, for example, it was considered bad form to take focus in a room full of people, it's going to be very hard for you to assert yourself in a room or even to find out what your voice is. And so often I'll say, if you could write a scene that was about anything and no one was ever going to see it, not your agents, not your spouse, no one, and they'll come in the next week and go, God, I wrote a scene that scared the hell out of me. Who knew I was that angry? And I said, you're finding your voice. That great advice. Great advice. So you made another left turn <laughs> and became... A novelist. And before I talk about that, I want to talk about the fact that you, like me, tend to reinvent yourself from time to time. And um, boy, I think it keeps you young. It keeps you thinking about other things and always trying to master something new or learn something new or meet other people. Um, You know, I'm a big proponent of reinventing oneself, and obviously you (laughs) are too. No, I'm a big fan of that. Though, to be honest, the the same week that Mark and I were hired on Welcome Back, Cotter, I sold my first mystery short story to Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. So, whether it was writing for the L.A. Times or written by, you know, or the New York Times. I've written for a lot of magazines. So I was always writing prose, even when I was a film and TV writer. And I've written and sold like a dozen mystery short stories. All of this stuff happened before I began writing my series of mystery novels. When I was a renaissance man. No, I don't think so. <laughs> They're just different forms. I mean, mm-hmm. the the my mystery. I mean, my first mystery novel came out, uh, uh, Mirror Image, the first in this series. I was sixty years old, so I'm the poster child for don't give up, keep writing. Right. You know, the whole nine yards. I'm the poster child for that, and 
for me, it's just a different version of exploring what's in my mind and heart, whether it's through writing sitcoms or op-ed pieces or my nonfiction book that I wrote, Writing from the Inside Out, or these mystery novels. I mean, even if you look at my series of mystery novels, they're about uh, a psychologist who consults with the Pittsburgh police and he is a trauma expert who works with the victims of violent crime. That came out of five years working with Bob Stollero, one of the nation's leading trauma experts. My hero is born and raised in Pittsburgh and went to Pitt, just like me. Okay. Totally blue collar, just like me. Uh-huh. And my books give me an opportunity to do the two things I find most interesting. Writing about how Pittsburgh has changed since I was a kid. Uh-huh. You know, I used to work in steel mills in college. Those right. mills are gone now. Sure. How Pittsburgh has changed and the current state of the mental health field, which I know a lot about. And so I got an opportunity through the vehicle of writing whodunits to talk about those two things. And I even have uh, in my third or fourth book, I forget which one, it opens with a 30-page therapy session between my hero and a patient, which, you know, I thought was pretty daring. Now, she gets kidnapped at the end of it, which doesn't happen to all my patients, but... <laughs> just but some. It, but <laughs> just a few. Some, it's happened yeah. a few times, uh-huh. you know, but we don't like to talk about that. But yeah, it, 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 it gives me an opportunity to write about that stuff and, and uh, to have an unfettered voice. You know, when people say to you, what's the thing you like the best about writing novels? And I would say no meetings. Yeah, no meetings and no actors to change it and, and no, no budget directors. Concerns, no and, budget yeah, concerns. Exactly. And the only notes you get if you have, you know, good editors are usually copy editing notes. You know, you're, it's your book. How long does it take you to write a book? Well, because I have a full practice, I have 40 patients I see. So most mystery novelists put out a book a year. Some like Michael Connolly put out too. I put one out every three to four years because I just don't have the time. Mm-hmm. You know, so I write a little bit at lunch and then mostly evenings and weekends. And I'll go like I have Head Wounds came out in February. I don't even know what the next book's going to be about because I sort of let stuff marinate. And usually it starts because I read something or something occurs to me, like Night Terrors, my third novel. I wrote it when I saw an article that night terrors, which has always been a pediatric diagnosis, more and more adults are being diagnosed with night terrors. You know, where you wake up screaming and you're covered with sweat. That's usually a four-year-old or a three-year-old. They're finding now that life is so stressful that adults suppress most of that stress and it's coming out in the form of night terrors. So I thought, well, if an ad- which adult would have night terrors? And I thought, an FBI profiler. He's been sitting talking to serial killers for 30 years. Or my wife after watching Law & Order SVU before going to bed every night. Yeah, And so as a result, I went, wow, that's what I'll do. So the FBI grabs my hero and says, we got a guy. He can't sleep. He's afraid to go to sleep. So he's drinking coffee all, you know, and he won't (laughs) go to sleep because he wakes up screaming and he's embarrassed. And so... That ends up getting me into the story. So the stories are always based on some clinical condition. Do you outline? No, I'm a pantser. Okay, you're one of those guys that just starts at the beginning and just goes yeah. all the way through. Have you 
encountered a situation where you're 150 pages into a book and you go, I've written myself into a corner. This all five of the work. novels. All five of the novels. Uh-huh. Um, I love writing. I hate thinking. And so <laughs> I, I'd much rather write than think. And so to do it the way I do it means you do a lot of rewriting. Uh-huh. I usually start a novel. I don't even know who's the victim. I don't even know who the killer is. And I decide around page 50 or 60 who's going to get knocked off. And about page 200, which of the characters I've written is going to be the killer. Well, but that's good because and then you go if, back and, you, yeah. if you don't know, then the reader's not going to know. The reader's not going to be able to go by page 35. Okay, okay, it's the limo driver. That's it's right. The limo driver. I've heard from so many people saying that they always find the twists and turns so surprising and in my novels. And I think so do I. Because I don't know when my hero opens a door who's going to be on the other side of it and what's going to happen. And so I've written myself into a cul-de-sac every single novel. And then I have to backtrack and work a different way. You know, I've written a road that comes to a dead end. So I have to back up and find another road. But I'd rather write than outline stuff. One of the things I really had a problem with in, in film and television was the requirement to tell them, what it was before I wrote it. And in my experience, I write it to find out what it is. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, where can where can they get your books? Well, they can get it where all fine books are sold. They can get it at bookstores. Um, of course, book on Amazon. Yeah, I know. There's so few of them left. They're, they're actually in bookstores? They're in bookstores. Wow. Yeah, I know. Uh, you can get, of course, on Amazon. Uh, uh, the publisher is Poison Pen Press. And if you want to I'm learn, holding a copy up to the microphone, by the way, for those of you who can see it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can always go to my website and learn about the books. Uh, my website is uh, DennisPalumbo.com. And it has all the books and all the blurbs and reviews of the books. I've been very lucky. The critics have been super nice to me. Well, they're fun books. Yeah, oh, well, they really thank are. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, too. You know, I, I mentioned how much I like writing about Pittsburgh. And when people say, gee, do you get a Don't lot Don't hear of, that sentence yeah, very often. I like yeah. writing about Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. But when I get emails and calls from readers in Pittsburgh, they're never talking about the characters or the plot. They always go like, hey, you have not making a left on South Street. No one can make a left on South Street. <laughs> it's, it's always information that I got a street wrong or uh-huh. I had sometime, I had a big scene happen in a bar in Wilkinsburg and I didn't know it was a dry area, that there were uh-huh. no bars in Wilkinsburg. So now with every book I have to call up friends in Pittsburgh. You know, is, gee, is the Penn Hotel still there? No, they knocked that down. You had Vernon Law <laughs> throw a slider. He yeah. never throw a, a slider, slider on a 2-1 count. I I know, mm-hmm. and it's really funny. And actually, the, the the best email I got was from a reader who who seemed to like the books a lot. She was a city planner, and she had read the first three books and said, "Look, I, I love the books. I like Daniel Rinaldi. He's a wonderful character. His office is in Oak, Oak Oakmont. I'm sorry, Oakland in the Pitt campus, and his house is up in Mount Washington, which overlooks the Three Rivers." She said, "You have Daniel Rinaldi go home by the worst route." that anyone would ever use. <laughs> and so she sent me the correct route that a person in rush hour would use to get from Oakland to 
Mount Washington. Uh-huh. I now use that one. There you and go. And I gave her in the next book, I gave her an in the acknowledgement page, I acknowledged her and thanked her for uh-huh. giving Daniel the correct way to go home. <laughs> That's great. Dennis, this has been terrific. Thank oh, you so well, thank much. Thank you so much for having me. I really had a blast. It's gone by so quickly. Thanks. Uh, read his books. And that will do it for this week. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Bruce and Jason Miller, Howard Hoffman, and John Wolford. If you want to get in touch with me, just write me, HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. If you haven't already, please subscribe. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hollywood.